0: Martin and Neil, it is beyond exciting for me to get the chance to interview you for the very first time. You've written this autobiography on days like these. And as I understand it, you actually wrote it yourself or well, you you penned it and then you got help putting it onto a computer.
1: Yeah, well, uh, computers and I don't go together. As as we know from this, uh, this podcast here, you know, the difficulty I've had about signing into it. So very, very briefly, it was, yes, I had this opportunity to do some writing. I, I thought that I would start off in, in, in a manner like Thomas Hardy. I think it probably maybe might end up like Oliver Hardy, I suppose. But but this opportunity to to take a little bit of time and do some uh, a few reflections of, of my my football career. And I thought I had put it down. So what was happening, I was putting it down on longhand, really longhand. Writing starting off very well. And then by the time they got to about fifth page, then it started to taper off. So my daughters, Ashley and Alana, said, "Dad, you know what? There's actually easier ways to do this. You know, so you can actually put it onto your computer and we can speak into it." But I thought, I'm still wanting to do the long hand, so I did that. Matt, I I, I put it long hand, I photocopied it and sent to them. They put it onto a machine, and some of the I, some of the, I had already sent to the publishers, who kindly, uh, Pan Macmillan. So. Along the way, between me sending longhand to the publishers and sending some stuff, and Ashley Nalan had been unbelievably helpful, really helpful. I probably wouldn't have got it finished in time, then that's how it went.
0: Something that leapt out at me was just how important football is. You you describe your arrival at Celtic Football Club, which was a golden era, I think, in your managerial career, in your life, perhaps. And and you you say that football is so important for people. But for some of these, for many of these Celtic fans, it really seemed to be at the heart of their existence. Can you put into words now just what football can mean to people?
1: Yes, I can, really, because... I'm not saying that that's every every single football club. You know, sometimes people just uh, want want to support their club to get away from the trials and tribulations of normal life. Other people take it, you know, as as a a a type of a, a journey that that a club actually belongs to them. For instance, in Celtic. In 2003, when we got to the UEFA Cup final in Seville, 75,000 Celtic fans descended upon Seville. Matt, it was absolutely incredible, really incredible. Loads of them without any tickets. Obviously, the stadium only held 50,000. But I'm. I can give you an example. Within four months of me going to Celtic, I went to a supporters' club meeting one 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 evening. And honestly, every single person at that at that football club, no matter how well dressed or how ragged they might have been, there were about 150 at the club. And I'm telling you now, at least 135 were clutching season ticket hold or season tickets. So it meant absolutely everything to them. And this gave me not that. After four months, not that I didn't know already, but I honestly, this was a reminder of how much Celtic football club meant to, meant, meant to Celtic fans. You write about your
0: childhood growing up in Northern Ireland and you were one of nine children. You had four brothers. You had four sisters. You, you played quite a bit with your two younger brothers. You played with a, an older sister. Try to paint that picture as you do in the book of what, what life was like for you as a boy.
1: Well, g- growing up in my 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 first nine or ten years, absolutely idyllic. I would love to say just to to, to uh, you know sell some copies that I had a horrible childhood. It was really terrible. You know that mo- mother and father were really unkind to me. Absolutely not. You know I was I was protected by his older sisters and older brothers. But really, uh, growing up with um, two younger brothers and a younger sister and a slightly older sister, it was absolutely idyllic, if you can call Northern Ireland. It, there were I mean, the Troubles only started in about 1969. So the Troubles of, of, of Northern Ireland, I mean, there were, there, there, there were undercurrents before, but we were living in a village at this time that seemed so far removed from things, you know, that so primary school was an ups, a, a real delight in many aspects how many people would really say that. And um, so this sort of protection growing up in an Irish, an Irish nationalist family, I think where you would have, a picture of christ up in the window uh sorry up in the wall alongside you know one of the 1916 leaders like padre pierce as well too so we, we, we kind of knew where we came from but having said that our protestant friends were fantastic absolutely fantastic in that sense and I've stayed lifelong friends ever since.
0: When did you first realise, Martin, that you might actually be good enough at football to make a career out of it? Two of your older brothers, much older brothers, they were they were pretty serious Gaelic footballers, weren't they?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was going to have a little joke with you and say to you, at uh, it must have been about four years of age, but I didn't know... I'll tell you what happened, man. that my brother, I had obviously a a big interest in soccer from about 19, I I saw in a neighbor's house the World Cup final where Pelly scored and um, Brazil won the World Cup in 1958. Then in 1960, when when we first got a television, the, the FA Cup final between Wolves and Blackburn was on and I was absolutely hooked after that. But what had happened is that my brother had read a book on Puskas, the great, great uh, Hungarian player who played for Real Madrid and had scored four goals in the 1960 European Cup final against Eintracht Frankfurt. And he told me, he came back from university to tell me, what age was I, nine or ten? And um, he said that Puskas could keep a tennis ball up in his foot without letting it drop for 200 times. And I thought, if I can do this, man. I'm going to be as good as Puskas. So it dropped off my foot after two or three. He came back three months later. I think it was for the Christmas period. He came back and I could do it. I could do 200 times. And even now at my age, I think now if you ask me to, could I do 50, I I think I probably could. So there, that was it. I was absolutely hooked. I'm going to be as good as Puskas. I am Puskas really because (laughs) I could keep the tennis ball up in my foot. Tell us what it
0: was like making your way to England, still a teenager, to build your life, to build your career in football.
1: Yeah, well, it's what I wanted to do, as we've just mentioned. Really, it was, I was playing, I, I... I just finished a levels I was had gone to Queen's University to study law but I was playing amateur football for a a, a team called distillery who were playing Irish League football still of a very decent standard distillery in the past had had drawn a game some years earlier to, with, with Benfica at home so there was a good old there was good a bit of history of, uh, attached to a number of the clubs but distillery was was the club I was playing for and uh, uh troubles then in this was in 1971 as it turns out we won the we won the Irish Cup and because of that there that brought us uh, a ticket into the following season's at, uh what was called the European Cup Winners Cup at that time and we were drawn against Barcelona I score against Barcelona. I think I'm in business now. And about a couple of weeks later, along came um, uh, Nottingham Forest, made a bid for me, and I had this chance to go and become a professional footballer in in Nottingham. They were struggling at the time, but it didn't matter to me. Not one job. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to be fantastic. And I left this. I left the um, the law degree behind, primarily maybe because I couldn't spell jurisprudence, but overall, it, this was it. Troubles then were rife in in Northern Ireland at the time, and I thought, listen here, this is a new life for me, an exciting life to become a professional footballer, and it was what I wanted to do.
0: You would become a hugely celebrated professional footballer, but give us a sense of what it's actually like day to day. For example, you, you had to have cortisone injections. You didn't like having injections. Tell us a bit about the rigors of life as a, a football
1: player. Tell us a bit about the highs and lows. Okay, well, fine. I'm going back now to uh, to early the early seventies when I when I went to England. First of all, number one in on the charts was Rod Stewart with Maggie May. You know, the old uh, the old sweeping blondie hair thing. And I thought, whoa, what would well, be a minute? If I can't make it as a professional player, well, do you think he might take me on as a, a silent guitar player? But anyway, so in 1971, if you, if you talk about me, the excitement was fantastic. But here I was from, from overnight being a student, essentially, to becoming a professional player. Well, the difference is really day and night. You're training every single day, you're training for a few hours, but you are, you know, it, it, it it's um, all leading up to every all in preparation for the Saturday game. And remember, we are now talking about maybe six years after England had won the World Cup in 1966. So there was still this great enthusiasm about English football at the time. And... Within a couple of months of me playing, I mean, I'm down at West Ham playing against Bobby Moore. And uh, a month or two before that, I'd actually participated and scored at Old Trafford against George Best. And I have a joke map where I say, I thought to myself, this is an easy game, a really easy game. Unfortunately, I joke and say I hit a bad spell, which probably lasted about four and a half seasons. But um, anyway... Overall, so you're talking about the injections. Yeah, it was just, it was part of life. You know, suddenly you've got a bad knee, the manager wants you to play. Sorry, okay, brings the physiotherapist in, he sticks it in, probably in the wrong knee as well too, like anything else. But it was, uh, I hated injections, still do. But to, to get playing, you thought, yeah, I have to do this. I'm not counting this
0: as a question because I just want you to elaborate on something you said there. I mean, you have to give us a bit of an insight into what it was like playing against Bobby Moore and playing and playing against George Best. Well,
1: I mean, how can you describe it? You think to yourself, well, but Bobby Moore, Bobby Moore. I, I see that iconic picture of him being carried around the, the the Wembley Stadium holding that little Jules Rimet Trophy aloft. England 1966 have won it with the red shirts which was quite a bit of a surprise. Germany got the uh, won the toss and got their own shirts. And then suddenly George Best, who is absolutely 1971, late 71, probably early 72, absolutely at the height of his career. And he is so good looking as well too. So you, it is impossible not to be jealous of him, man, you know. But to play against him at Old Trafford and with the... I'll tell you, it was, uh, it was early December, 4th of December, 1971. And it was one of those, you know, where, the, where, the, uh, where it gets dark pretty quickly. So the second half of the game is played in darkness, obviously, with the floodlights on. And it was so atmospheric. It's incredible. And there, two months earlier, i have been watching him scoring a fantastic goal against Sheffield United. And here I am now with Matt Gillies, our manager, of Nottingham Forest telling me, get up, Martin, you're going on. With 25 minutes to go, man, I get up, honestly, and it is just the most incredible feeling that you're going on at Old Trafford. You're against George Best, Bobby Charlton and Dennis Law, all playing in the team, and you think, this is it. If life stopped 15 minutes after I'd scored the goal against him, I I would never have been bothered again.
0: Okay, now you were an industrious midfielder. You worked incredibly hard on on the pitch. But describe to us as best you can
1: what it feels like to score a goal. To score a goal, well, I within within six sorry within five weeks of me coming over. Remember, I was in. I had been just a, um, an amateur player, two nights a week training with Distillery, and and then the game on the Saturday. To so, to come in every single day and train. Obviously, you're going to get fitter they're definitely going to get fitted and you're going to become more professional, as it were, uh, if that's the case. So my debut, I came on as a substitute against West Bromwich Albion and uh, within five weeks of arriving over there. So it was like you know, it was just happening so quickly. And I within 11 minutes, I've scored. I've scored in my debut. The ball came out. Uh, it was in, I was hanging around the edge of the penalty area. Probably too scared to go in and mix it really and try and head the ball into the net. But I think Matt Gillies, the manager, told me just to hang around the penalty area and anything drops. And and I did have a reasonably decent shot. Matt, honestly, this uh, corner kick came over. It's headed out. I'm in the edge of the box. I absolutely smashed this and I couldn't have hit any better. It whizzed into the net to give us a 2-1 lead. And we eventually beat West West Bromwich Albion 4-1. A big big victory but for me to score the goal at that moment 11 minutes on and the and the nottingham forest supporters would have known very very little about me other than the fact that I'd played a couple of reserve games before that but very very little so for me to go in there and to be playing with the incredible ian story moore uh fantastic football who eventually went to manchester united this was just, it, it, it couldn't have been better
0: now, for years, you played at Forest under one of the all-time legends of the game, one of the most famous managers in the history of the beautiful game, Brian Clough. Give us a sense of what that was like. Tell us about Cloughy. Tell us the, the good bits and the not so good bits.
1: Well, first of all, he's the he's the he's not only the most charismatic manager uh, or at, at that particular time in the game, but he's probably the most charismatic man I've ever met. Despite you know not. As he says himself, he would love to have been better educated than he was. He was sharp, you know, quick-witted, very, very clever, really clever, and uh, absolutely brilliant, brilliant at his job, but so much charisma is untrue. Uh, Listen, for instance, he might come in and say something to you on a Monday, possibly contradict himself on a Friday, and you'd believe both. So he's that type, but every day was a different day with him. There was no, you know, at times when you thought that you could see from a distance as he's coming down the corridor, you think he's in a bad mood. You can see him. He's wiping his brow. He's in a bad mood. I've seen big players and I mean, very, very big players like center halves, like like Larry Lloyd, jumping into the drying room onto the side to stay out of his way, you know? So uh, listen you have to look at his record taking a provincial club like ourselves to the, to, to winning a league the big league, two European Cups and doing likewise with Derby didn't win they didn't win the European Cup with Derby got to the semifinal think they were robbed against Juventus with a couple of really dodgy decisions. but that said honestly Charisma was oozing through him absolutely. now okay so that's the good side. The bad side was that I never really get on too well with him for most of the time. Although I did play the, I did play the game. So as John Robertson, my, my um, uh, really good friend and brilliant winger says, Martin, if you go and check the records, you, 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 know, with the year that we won the league, we play 42 games. I played 38 of them. So I think, I, and we went on a 42 game unbeaten run, Matt, as well to only bettered by Arsenal in recent years. And I played 38 of those games as well too. So I know I, I shouldn't be complaining, I, however i always felt as if i was striving to win his to win his um i, I was nearly going to say affection that would be hardly the word but just, just to to his to approval if, his approval would probably be yeah probably but absolutely that yes exactly and that whereas i felt some of the other players really gifted players didn't have to do didn't have to prove themselves every single minute never mind every single day you know
0: It was a tale of two European Cup finals for you, wasn't it, as you describe in the book. Talk us briefly through the contrasting emotions for you. Nottingham Forest, this East Midlands football club, not a massive club by any stretch of the imagination, not a Liverpool, not a Manchester United, remarkably and famously win the European Cup in 1979 and 1980. Tell us why it was such a contrasting experience for you, those two finals.
1: Okay. well, first of all, we had knocked Cologne out in the semi-final of the European Cup, Cologne being the existing German champions. And for us to then play Malmo in the final that we would, even us, you know, in our first year, our first attempt that it would be expected to win against Malmo of Sweden. I got injured three weeks beforehand. I had a dead leg that developed into a real big size, big size blood clot. And, and so I couldn't train for many, many, many days beforehand. Archie Gemma was almost the same, different injury, but Archie started to improve a lot. And Frank Clark, the left back, was had a bit of an injury, but probably most likely to be fit. Now, I can understand now the managerial's uh, position, or sorry, the manager's position now having been a manager. But at that time, you want to play. Nottingham Forest. you want to play in a European Cup final. You've helped get the team there. And suddenly, then he decides that, that, uh, that he cannot go in. He, being Brian Clough, decides that we cannot go in with possibly three injured players, particularly one who hasn't really trained for the last three weeks. We declare ourselves fit. You say, you would do, wouldn't you, you know? And he said, no, I can't take the chance. So he left Archie Gemmell, who had been a, a great player for him in derby days and also at Forest and myself on the bench. Now, Matt, when you're left on the bench, you don't feel part of it. You don't feel part of it. You just want to get on. And so, of course, I'm frustrated and angry. Actually, as it turns out, he was, he was right because the following week, I played in a, a, um, an international game for Northern Ireland and was came off at half time. I just wasn't fit. But I wasn't. I didn't know that. And I, the anger and frustration is blinding me, you know. And really, when I look at, I, I, I'm, all, I'm almost, I'm almost so disappointed. Well, I am disappointed with myself because there we are. The lads have won the European Cup, and I've got a face like thunder. Really, just because it didn't get on, anybody, any professional will tell you, you've got to be on that field when that final whistle goes to your part of the game. Contrast that then to the following year. Of course, when Nottingham Forest had won the first time, it's not going to happen again. Nottingham Forest do not go to two successive European Cup finals. So the chances of us getting there again are remote. So hence my anger and frustration. Remarkably, the following year, we're there again. We're playing Hamburg. I'm fit. I'm going to play in the game. And actually, even the manager says, I thought I played really well in the game. So the emotions of winning and winning and you're getting their hands in that cup, a cup that belonged to George Best, Bobby Charlton, De Stefano and Cuscus, it's, well, there's nothing like it.
0: What did it mean to you to captain Northern Ireland to the 1982 World Cup finals? That was that incredible victory against Spain when Gerry Armstrong scored in that 1-0 win. But what was it like to be the captain at a World Cup of your country and also to be the Catholic captain?
1: Yeah, well, I have to, I have to credit the manager, Billy Bingham, himself a Protestant, Billy became the manager for the second time with Northern Ireland in, in about uh, late 1979, early 1980. And of course, I'm, I'm, having, I'm making really good progress in European football with Nottingham Forest at club level. But Billy takes me aside, first of all, to say, listen, I want you to be the captain of the team. It was a bit of a surprise because at that time, trouble in Northern Ireland, still, you know, sectarian, sectarian problems. And I know that Billy would probably get a little bit of um, a little bit of criticism for doing that there from perhaps maybe from Northern Ireland fans that might've wanted someone else's captain. So he stuck his neck out in many aspects and he did say to me, listen, I think you're the best man for the job. I think you're probably the best communicator that we have. And obviously your experiences with Nottingham Forest are great. And he said, and I'll, I'll, I'll take whatever criticism is coming my way for, for this decision. But in all honesty, if we start to win matches, Martin, the crowd will forget about it, and so it became it became a genuine honour to be it. and to lead the team in 1982. Matt was special, you know. When you have the likes of Pat Jennings, Jerry Armstrong, a young Norman Whiteside, Billy Hamilton, players like this here, you know, and of course it's it's become a, a, a major a major legendary point in Northern Ireland's uh, footballing history.
0: I'm really curious about the transition from being a player to being a manager. And in the book, you discussed Peter Taylor's role in that. Peter mm-hmm. Taylor had been Brian Clough's assistant for years, hadn't he? And something he said to you kind of helped you on the way to management.
1: I uh, no no question about it. Or oh, it certainly made me start to think about it. I didn't really give management a thought, even in my even my late stages of playing. Didn't really give it much thought, man. So. And uh, I had, I, I mentioned earlier, I had the occasional argument, more than the occasional argument with Brian Clough. That seemed to uh, intensify with having the, more than the occasional argument with Peter Taylor, still obviously trying to prove myself. He, as you say, being the assistant to Brian Clough. Uh, Peter Taylor was very, very important in the success of Nottingham Forest, regardless of anything else, because he was fantastic for Brian Clough. He really, he improved Brian Clough's outlook on everything, the two of them fell out badly, and it's a real shame. And I think that uh, and Peter Taylor eventually died without ever uh, having it made up with Brian Clough. They fell out over because Peter Taylor retired or said he was retiring from Forest, and then he became a manager of Derby County, which would be an anathema to, to to Clough. So they fell out. But anyway, Peter then retired himself, and he I by an absolute fluke I ran into him in a in a store in Nottingham. He was just coming out. I saw him coming and I was trying to evade him because I hadn't spoken to him since I'd left Forest. And this would be about 1986, 87. He collared me. And he said, which is the best words he'd ever spoken to me. He said, you disappoint me, son. You disappoint me. And I said, well, why? Maybe he's going back to my playing days. And he said, no, I thought you would be a manager. I really thought you would be a manager. I thought you were cut out for it. And uh, Peter always gesticulated with his hands and said, you know, and you had the best teachers in the world and me and Brian. So I'm I'm really disappointed in you. Thought you would do it. So I I, I leave. And and the words were kind in a non-kind fashion, you know, so... uh, I, and I, I did really go home to think about it. And he said, well, Taylor, who never, ever mentioned this to me as a player, thought that I might make, uh, I might be of uh, managerial material. And so as a consequence, I started to think about it. Then what I did, Matt, then I started to, I started to apply for a lot of jobs, particularly further down the leagues. I'm never getting too many replies, I must admit, but it still, it, 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 um, it fostered something within me then to think, yeah, okay, I'll go with it.
0: You were famously manager of Wick and Wanderers, but at Leicester City, you won two League Cups. At Aston Villa, you, I think, achieved three consecutive top six finishes. And at Celtic Football Club, you won three League trophies and went to the UEFA Cup final. We'll come to your stint managing Republic of Ireland in a moment, but as a club manager, what really stands out for you? Uh, you, you mean in in terms of uh, in terms of achievement or in
1: terms. Uh... I, in, in terms of achievement, but also the experience of a football yeah. club. Okay, right. Well, first of all, right. I, I, I'll follow on then from from saying that when I started to apply for jobs, I, I, and my my first job in, in management was actually at Grantham, Grantham Town. So about twenty miles from Nottingham. Most famous thing about Grantham, I suppose, is Margaret Thatcher was born there, and I used to pass the little shop quite often on my way to the uh, on the way to the football uh, stadium. But um, so. Uh, yeah th- that i i thoroughly enjoyed I must admit you know i had that uh, for two years we were in about i think about thirty five leagues below the the football league so and our, our results weren't exactly shown you know on news at 10 or anything like that you know so uh but i i I actually did love i love working with the players I was able to bring down some football league players like uh, Kenny Burns came down to play for me for a couple of games, and to give Kenny Burns a telling off at half time in front of a front of Grantham Town players took a little bit of doing. I thought he was going to he was he, he was going to finish me off here, you know, and uh, but he took the he took the criticism. He scored a hat trick in the second half when by going up to play centre forward, and but there was moments where I thought, yeah, listen here, I I think I think I can connect with players. OK, so I had this chance to go and manage uh, Wickham Wonders, who were in what was called the Vauxhall Conference at the time, trying to get into the Football League. But, Matt, this idea that, that you think that you start down there and, and, and learn about the game and then get your chance uh, 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 really at the top is absolute nonsense. It's nonsense. You feel down at the bottom there, you will never get another chance. So can you imagine being a manager of, a, of a, let's say, a championship team and, uh, and and looking at somebody who's had a, a decent career in, in football, but trying down at lower level and finding out that they can't win a game, there's not much chance you've been taken on up, up, up there. So when, when I became manager of Wickham, my heart and soul was in the job. I was really going to have to make this work. And so I spent hours and hours and hours and hours, not only in terms of us when we did their training, which is two nights a week and, the, and the, obviously the weekend game, but watching footballers up and down the country and so this was uh, I was prepared to make this work so we are drawn against VS rugby who are in a league below us but I need to see them play beforehand and we've got a game either either the following saturday against them or the saturday after that they happen to be playing in a midweek game so it's my chance to watch VS rugby play the only opportunity I'm going to get to see them but it's I, I was running late that uh, that particular day at wickham so I get my wife and two daughters into the car Off we drive up there to VS Rugby. My two daughters are doing their homework in VS Rugby Social Club, my overlooked by my wife as I'm watching VS Rugby. So that's the point. I put the hours in. I had to make this work. Otherwise, where do I go after that? You know, and really, I was depending, obviously, on my own particular skills, but obviously on the players at Wickham Wonders to perform for me and therefore results were everything and just to complete that answer when you look back at the success
0: you had at Leicester at Villa at, at Wickham as well and, and at Celtic of course does anything stand out there particularly is, is there one moment one success that you really treasure above others I mean I'm thinking for example in the book of that season where you don't win the UEFA Cup final and you take the players back home and you, you have to overhaul Rangers on goal difference and, yeah. and you get them out onto the pitch they're, they're not as fresh as you'd like them to be because of what they've just been through you win 4-0 and it's still not quite enough but I think you say that for some Celtic Celtic supporters that was still a very special season so I've just mentioned that as an example but for you is there something
1: that really stands out well yeah for a lot of Celtic fans you we, we didn't win anything that that season didn't win a competition we played, I think, about 16, 17 more games than Rangers competitively, obviously because of the UEFA Cup run. And yet many Celtic fans still say it was one of the most outstanding seasons they've ever had. I think Seville, the travelling, the journeys they made to go to Seville, the winning of, against Liverpool in the quarterfinal, the beating of Blackburn Rovers in an earlier round where Scottish football was actually... Being held up possibly to ridicule if we were going to be hammered in these matches and we actually take on and beat liverpool over two games particularly winning at anfield so yeah those were they were special but matt sorry for me major disappointment because you have to win we lost to porto in the final porto go on to win the champions league the following year with his, almost exactly the same team and uh and No, so for me, massive disappointment. That day as well to to come back a couple of days later and we miss a penalty at Rugby Park and don't get the extra goal. So those are and I seem to remember my disappointments more than the more than the successes. And it's and it's bugged me ever since. And so the successes are fine. It's the ones that got away that really do irk you. Tell us about your experience with the Republic of Ireland. You take Roy Keane
0: with you as your assistant. Mm-hmm. And you qualify for the 2016 mm-hmm. European Championships, beating Germany on route. Mm-hmm. Give us a sense of those years for you and what it was like working with Roy Keane. Because you'd worked with him as a pundit for Champions okay. League games.
1: Yeah, I I'd don't I done, I'd done, I'd done a, I had done a few games with him in punditry work, and it was generally for for Champions League matches, for we might be in Germany or Austria or someone like this here for for a particular group games, and you get the opportunity either maybe a lunch before you go to the stadium, or perhaps maybe the night afterwards, particularly the night afterwards when you're sitting down. He was fantastic company, very self-effacing in many aspects. You wouldn't think it was the Roy Keane that that uh, it is on TV at this minute. But very, very good. Very not just not just in terms of what he had done as a player, but astute as well too, man. Really astute, clever, intelligent boy. Really intelligent boy. Knows the game inside out. This idea that he's just a strong motivator, you know, and and has carried that on into into management and into punditry. Please don't be fooled by all of that. There, he's got a really good insight into the game. So we we thought. That working together, perhaps at international uh, at international level, might be okay, Matt, because we don't see each other every day. I think it might be a problem working with Roy if you're seeing him every day. You know, he could, be, you know, it could be it could be all-consuming. You know, sometimes I, I, you know, I I wouldn't mind a, maybe a sandwich at half six in the evening time when he's, you know, so wait, wait a minute. And I, I mean, and honestly, and I, I think I'm all-consuming myself, but so. We get the chance to to, to to go in together in the Republic of Ireland. Of course, that's going to cause a stir because Roy famously walked out in nine, 2002 in Saipan just before the World Cup in, in Japan and, and South Korea. So And he divides the country. But he doesn't really actually divide the country now. You know, most of the people are actually on his side. So he's almost a unifying uh, part to all of this. Anyway, so we started to, start to gather a bit of momentum. The team might not be the strongest in the world, but there's a really good, good spirit among the players. Some of the younger lads like Robbie Brady and Jeff Hendrick, I believe, actually, their, their their club careers moved on and they were able to get big moves on the strength of what they did in the Euros in 2016. However, getting there was, was fantastic. What had happened, Matt, is that the Republic of Ireland, like, like Northern Ireland, don't qualify too often for competitions. It started with a fantastically famous Jack Charlton oh, way back in some years before. And the Republic of Ireland had a really good team. A lot of good players, like Liam Brady and all these players are good. Matt or Jack Charlton said to them, I don't want you to control the ball. He said, I want you to play it up in there and so we'll, we'll chase it. So you've got all these great players chasing the ball, but they love Jack. absolutely loved him and their success followed and not just the success on the field but it it pervaded into the nation so they're coming back to dublin airport where jack is honestly he's like feted, like 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 the pope in that in in many aspects so there's millions so and for me if we could get to France and be there, I just wanted to, I wanted to try and see, recreate to a certain extent some of those days. And in, in fact, we managed it, Matt, because we opened, the, we opened in, in Paris against Sweden and to see the, there must have been 20,000 Irish fans at that there singing at the top of their voices. It was fantastic. And I'm not saying that we ended up with a great success that, that Jack Charlton had. We, maybe we had a much lesser team, but it doesn't really matter. But those moments are great. Anyway, it seems as if somewhere along the way, I did not get on too well with the Irish press, and uh, and you know, I possibly didn't get them; they didn't get me. And it was one of those scenes where you know we'll, we'll wait until the results turn, and then we can really we can really have a go. But if you're asking me about France, it was fantastic, really, really fantastic to be in the country at that time, to be participating in the Euros and to have actually gone as far as any Republic of Ireland team have in those Euros was really terrific.
0: Describe to us how you see yourself as a manager. What's what is your skill set? What do what you what do you like with players? What do you like with the people who run the clubs? What, what are, you just mentioned the relationship there with with the press. What, give us a sense of
1: how you see yourself as a, a manager and as a coach. Well, that's a very difficult one. You know, sometimes you you never see yourself as other people see you, which is uh, uh, rather unfortunate in my case. You know, so. Uh, uh, I sometimes think myself, yeah, I'm I'm i actually okay, and then most people just think I'm a cantankerous uh, a cantankerous man. So, and actually, in some of the writings I've done, I, I think they may well be right. Uh, but <laughs> they in, do in not. They do.
0: They do not. No one thinks you're a cantankerous man, surely.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I think that um, in terms of management. You, obviously, you learn from from uh, from other people, uh, like you know, people who have been successful, like Brian Clough. Some things I thought that that he did exceptionally well. And other things I thought not necessarily he was wrong, but I would have done them in a different manner. And uh, maybe the, the treatment of some some players. But I, I I had this early early notion, Matt, that you treat everyone the same, every person the same, and you know, and you're going to you're going to have uh, a, a a level of consistency. Sorry, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You do not treat everyone the same. You know, generally speaking. But when I left football clubs before, I, I saw those boys doing the almost like the Harry Redknapp stepping out on the transfer deadline, winding down the window and speaking to people, and a couple of players at uh, uh, at Aston Villa particularly. I think um, Curtis Davis wind, winds down the window and they're asking, well, what well, Martin's, Martin's left with? Oh, he always had his favourites. I'd love to have been able to have intercepted that and said, yeah, they were usually my best players, you know. So uh, so that's the point. You treat, uh, uh, Listen, it'd be very, very difficult to treat Henrik Larsson that you are depending on to score goals in the same manner as, as as maybe someone else in the side. But if there is something along the way that you are actually treat the players properly, Treat them properly. It's all you can ask for. You, even even in moments of leaving players out of the team. If you can try and do that as properly as you can, although sometimes, sometimes when players irritated me, I took great delight in leaving them out of the team. So, so maybe that's where the cantankerous bit comes in. But uh, ha- hard exactly to say, matter. but I, I think I think management, you think that you set off with a set of rules. They kind of bend a little bit. I'll give you an example. Very an example. Roy Keane was telling me this. You know that uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, one of the great managers of all time, Alex, who would say that uh, he had to be consistent across the board. So there was a function on where Alex was um, uh, telling the players all to be there that particular evening. And he wanted them all dressed in their, uh, in their Manchester United outfits, you know, their suits and their ties to be, it's a proper function. And uh, so all the lads arrive there with them, but, um, the French player, the great French player, um, the, uh, Cantona. Cantona, Eric arrives in a tracksuit when, and the tracksuit's almost open down to here with a sort of a semi-bare chest. So all the players look across to uh, to the uh, to the manager to say, wait a minute, what about this?" He's dressed to completely differently and in a tracksuit for a day. And Sir Alex goes to them. He, do you know what do you know what eric's like you know like there as if to say well eric can do it because eric is just fantastic so there's there's the great great manager bending the rules for eric you know so for all the players and to be fair as roy said all the players accepted it because it was eric so there is a there's a, i think there's a level of acceptance somewhere along the way for for greatness still to be uh, a, what shall i say excused for certain things you no know?
0: Did you enjoy your rivalries with the likes of Alex Ferguson, with Sir Alex Ferguson, with the likes of Arsene Wenger, with with some of these huge name managers?
1: Well, remember, most of the time, particularly with Leicester City, you're going in as underdogs. You know, you're playing against the... And, of course, you look look across and you see the players that they have at their disposal and you think, well, wouldn't mind managing that group. But, you know, Leicester, we fought doggedly. We, as you mentioned, we won two... Two league cups, we were in a final of another one as well too in the four years that we were there, and then the Aston Villa. What I was trying to build at Aston Villa was a side that could compete. Now we won, we uh, we were uh, we were able to compete pretty strongly with them, but eventually their absolute and utter class would 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 uh, would come through. And again, there is an element of envy that you know that you would love to be dealing with uh, with that sort of caliber of player throughout the team. It didn't mean that we at Aston Villa didn't have good players. We did have some really good players. So we were striving to get into the top four. So you mentioned the three top six finishes twice in two particular years. We were going very very close to it. Didn't make it in the end. Still played European football, which I suppose is something that Aston Villa fans might might want now. But overall. Uh, yeah, competing against those, learning, learning throughout, you know, throughout the years that you're doing, it. and of course then, uh, and and winning, winning some matches against them, of course it, that 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 helps as well.
0: But did you did you form relationships with them behind the scenes? Did you did you I, I, meet up with them after a game? Did you become <clears throat> friends with any of them?
1: Not with Arsen Wenger. No, Arsen, Arsen. There is there is. Um, I was really going to call it a tradition that after games, particularly in English football, that the managers meet up. And Alex Ferguson was very, very good at that. You know, w- win or lose, and he was generally winning in matches. He would meet up with the with fellow managers and uh, and be afterwards and have a little drink. That was not something that was um, that was peculiar to uh, to Arsene Wenger. He didn't do that. That's fine. That was his. Uh, and in many aspects, you know sometimes I think he's probably right, because if you're going in afterwards you know to converse with the manager, whether you've won or lost, the conversation is a you know it's it, it, it can be a you know you can either be uptight about it or you it, it it just sounds a little bit false in many aspects you know who is the
0: greatest player who's the greatest player that you've ever played with, managed or watched
1: the greatest oh, single I'm... football player? Hard again to say, remember, I played a couple of times with George Best, but George was probably not at his best in those particular games. But if I say I actually played with George Best for a while, then George Best, not on those occasions, but in different occasions, was fantastic, world-class player. And if he had been born in England, if he'd been born elsewhere, he would have been sensational in World Cup finals. He would have been absolutely sensational. And today, if he played today, with the pitches that they like and the less chance of the, let's say, Ron Harris of Chelsea cutting him in two, so he would, have, he would have been up there alongside Ronaldo and Messi in terms of scoring goals. The player was so, so good. So in, and that's in Tottenham playing with him. Uh, during my time in the game, You'd have to say that Maradona was just it was absolutely incredible. although I, I never played against him; I watched him. I, great players, and so and then when people started to talk about uh, about more modern day players, Messi, of course, Ronaldo, but player. So if you're asking me about players I played with, then if not on that particular day, but then George Best would have to be would have to be up there with anybody.
0: Overall, do you think the game has become better? Has it improved as an institution? since your playing days?
1: Uh, Yeah, there's many aspects of the game that have absolutely improved. First of all, the pitches. Secondly, the rule about no back pass to the goalkeeper to speed the game up a little bit. Things like this here are definite improvements. I wondered whether I thought that VAR would be really good. Now I'm not so sure. Other things that have crept into the game, Matt, that I I, I you know, the play acting is just it's it's reached epidemic proportions now. You know, it's really, really bad. Players holding on to their heads now when they've you know, when they when the challenge has been made, you know, you know, halfway down their shoulder or something like this here, because knowing referees are under pressure now to stop a game with any any supposed head injury now at all. And the referee would be feeling as if he would, by A, be guilty and, two, be accused of something for allowing a game to go on, even for 15 seconds if somebody's actually holding their head. So this is, you know, it's had an effect in the game. The play acting, is, as I said, has is, is reached incredible proportions now. And that that did not happen in our game. And, uh, but play it's
0: good, it's good that, the, that the game is taking a head injury seriously, isn't it?
1: Oh, I'm not I'm not yeah. disputing that. I'm absolutely not disputing. That's what I'm saying. But I'm talking about the play acting of players immediately going to feel their head, knowing that the game will be stopped. That's the point. Absolutely. And this is why the referees, they are under pressure. And I understand that. If I was a referee, I'd have to stop the game myself because I would be worried. One, one, for the player's safety. And two, that there might be recriminations against me. You know, so absolutely. But it is, uh, as I say, the play acting. The play acting has is, is out of control,
0: and the money, just as part of that question, uh, the, yeah, they, yeah, the, the money... huge money is—is is that broadly speaking a good thing? Is it a bad thing?
1: Does it depend? Is it case by case dependent? Uh, no, the, the the money for really good great players is no problem. I have no problem whatsoever either with great actors earning great money, with great tennis players earning great money, with great footballers earning great money. If they bring the crowds in and changing the course of uh, of a football club's season. Or, or their outlook, fine. I do have, obviously, don't have a problem with it. I can't do anything about it. But uh, there is now average players getting a lot of money with a sense of entitlement, with a sense of entitlement, and that becomes a problem. Does punditry come anywhere
0: close to playing and management? I, I, no. And of those three things, what, what, is the, what is the best?
1: Is it playing, managing, or punditry? All right, OK. If you want the order, playing, playing. This is what the game's about. It's about players, players. Management comes second. I don't care. But when I started off in the game, I didn't know who was managing Blackburn Rovers or Wolves or uh, or uh, I knew Sir Matt Busby obviously because of the uh, the Munich air crash. But there'd be very few managers that you would really have known in your early days of watching football. It was about the players. That's what you wanted to do when you grew up. You didn't want it. At ten years of age, I didn't think, oh, I want to become a manager. You know, not at all. Play, playing, managing, and punditry, which you might enjoy, you might not enjoy. Third.
0: You're a huge family man. We we talked at the beginning of this podcast about your your family growing up, but you've and you've mentioned your daughters during our conversation. Your wife Geraldine fell very ill some time ago, and you took time out of the game. She's okay now, thank goodness. But just describe to us how important your family is to you.
1: Oh, the family um, my. For the, for the most part in this universe family are important to everyone so i'm uh, I, I, no real difference about about me i was i was extremely fortunate i was earning enough money at that time at celtic to be able to take time out uh out of the game to uh, well, i don't know whether ever everythings I ever looked after or not but that's beside the point but i did other people were not as fortunate as me you know my men would still have to go go to work earn a, earn a crust you know while maybe there was sickness within the house. So those those type of problems are occurred. So I was extremely extremely fortunate to be able to be in that position to do that. So and and and, and any man in my position would have done exactly the same. So there's no no problem. As I said to you, uh, other men having to strive, having to get up at maybe four o'clock in the morning, having to work all all day to get some money to see that and and uh, and not being able to do those things. You know, I I was fortunate in terms of the family. Of course, very very important. <clears throat> my wife is very supportive to me in a non-supportive fashion, you know, where, and by that, I mean, she will be the first one. If you think that you've done all right, she will say, that's gone. Where are you going here? Or actually even be very critical, even of a success. You know, you could have done this better. You could have done that better, but that's Geraldine. And my two daughters couldn't be without them. I wouldn't be talking to you today about a possibility of a book or something that gets here without them. They've been terrific. In fact, they almost give up their personal time to do what they should be doing, looking after their father.
0: <laughs> Final question. What is the perfect day for Martin O'Neill? What makes you happy?
1: A perfect day. Perfect day in my, my, my footballing career was only, at the end of it, having won. Ashleen, Ashleen once, as a very young child, they never saw me play as, as a player. They were too young. And as they were growing up, I'm into management at Wickham. So Ashleen, my younger daughter, is uh, uh, my young daughter, my first daughter, used to always, really, very, very, very smart, realise that dad's mood always was uh, great if they won the game and terrible if they lost the match, and that the Chinese restaurant in some pokey place in High Wycombe on a Saturday night would be great if we could win. And so Aisling's phrase to me, when, when, when Geraldine would say, Cherry we'll see you after the game, Aisling would race out to the car and say, Dad, just win, just win. So life would be great. So, Matt, if you talk about a perfect day, just win. Martin and Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure to ask you my 20 questions. Thank you so
0: much for such interesting answers. No, ple- pleasure. Honestly, Matt, and thanks very much for asking me. Really appreciate it.